catechism question for today. But you have it, so you can study it. We'll pick it back up on that next week. 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 13 down to verse 21. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 down to verse 21. You know that we are working on this series titled Struggle Well, about how we handle suffering, trials, and struggles. So we're going to work our way through piece by piece. Of course, I want you to read First Peter five times, all right, so you can read each chapter if I'm, since we're working on chapter one, you can read chapter one five times if that works for you. If not, you can read all five chapters straight through, you know, one at a time. But I want you to get through it five times by the time we finish this book. Amen. And that way it'll help you with your understanding of the book. It also give you questions and things that we can work on if you um, if you uh, don't understand something. All right. So today. I want us to use this, the same topic, um, uh, that same idea about hope. Because last week we saw that Peter was talking about us having a living hope, right? How do we get through pain and suffering and trials? It deals with hope. So the first section last week we were talking about a living hope, right? We have hope beyond the grave because Jesus was resurrected. This week I want to use the, the title where is your ultimate hope? Where is your ultimate hope? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds as we look into your word. We pray, Lord, that you would move any hindrance, anything that we may be struggling with or wrestling with that may be distracting us from being able to hear from you. Move those things out of the way so that we can hear you by your spirit through your word. Lord, all of us are facing some kind of challenge somewhere in our lives, and, and we need hope in order to get through it. I pray that you would encourage us in this time and strengthen us, help us uh, to be able to endure because you are our living hope, and we have hope beyond this life. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that we are either going through a trial, just getting out of a trial, or about to go through another trial. Many of us can attest to the truth of this statement. And since this is true, today I want us to reflect on the question, how do I respond to the trials in my life? How do you respond to the trials in your life? We all have developed one or more coping mechanisms to deal with the stress, pressure, and trials that we all face. Some of us have learned to ignore our pain, and so we live in denial and pretend as, as if there's nothing wrong. Some of us turn to manipulation, and we become overly nice in order to manipulate people into getting what we want. Some of us have learned to turn to substances, and so we need drugs or alcohol or some form of substance to numb the pain or to take the pain off of our minds. 
Some of us turn to illicit relationships, and so we drown ourselves in our sorrows by dating a lot of people or through various sexual relationships. Some of us turn inwardly, and we become radically isolationist. I don't need nobody. It's just me and Jesus. Some of us turn to violence, and we lash out and hurt other people because we are hurting. And some of us, like myself, turn to idleness. Okay. We turn to Facebook, watching the news for five hours a night, <laughs> okay. Instagram, right. TikTok. We all have learned some form of strategy to navigate this life when we are hurting. Some of those ways are healthy, and some of those ways are not healthy. The question that we all have to ask ourselves is, how do I navigate life when I'm in pain? That's the question. Jot that one down. That's one you have to think about. How do I navigate life when I am in pain? Now, I recently spoke to someone. Got to be careful spoke to someone who asked me a question. And this question <laughs> was, what do, do you say to a Christian who feels no remorse about cursing people out? <laughs> and I'm like, I need some more details. What is it? <laughs> You know, it, it basically, uh, the person was, was talking to them, and, the, and, and they were telling them a story about how they had recently cursed somebody out, and, and they said, well, wait, that, you know, you, you didn't respond properly to the situation. You really should repent and ask God to forgive you for that. And the person said, I don't feel I have anything to repent for because I meant everything I said. That's it. I said what I said. What we're hearing is this person's defense mechanism, their coping mechanism. This is how this woman has learned to deal with life. When someone hurts me, I will hurt them back. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, before we too quickly judge this woman... <laughs> Right, because, you know, that ain't even right. And then in the back of our minds, there's a couple things that's rolling through, right? I'm, like, I'm glad nobody in church knows about Okay. Before, before we too quickly judge this woman, we have to recognize that every single one of us has also learned a particular way of responding when we are hurt. Some of us, we would never curse someone out because we, that, would, that would tarnish our image. And so we hide it instead. That's also sin. Right? Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us that you're supposed to be angry, just don't sin. Right? And he goes on to say, you should speak truth with your neighbor. So sometimes what we do in order to look Christian is 
we hold it in. We don't say anything when someone is hurting on us or doing anything wrong. We hide it because we're like, I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm less spiritual. That's also sin. Because you're not being honest with how you really feel. We have to learn how to be able to, to, Paul says, Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Tell the person that they're hurting you, they've done something wrong, but do it in a loving way. We've all learned ways of responding. Many of those ways that we respond are not godly ways. Now, I want us to look at this text today because I think Peter is trying to teach us how to reflect on our coping mechanisms. The ways that we have learned how to relate in the world, some of them healthy, some of them not healthy. But we have to always bring these things into the light of Scripture and see if they are healthy or not healthy. So I want us to look at these verses, verses 13 through 21, because Peter wants to make sure that we as children of God are responding in a way that is pleasing to our father. Let us read these verses quickly. Verse 13, he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, last week, I want us to remember that we focused on the pitfalls of going through uh, struggles. Right. And last week, when we saw the beginning of this chapter, Peter said that one of the pitfalls of going through trials and struggles is to fall into hopelessness and into despair, right? Um, this week, he is trying to give us a, a, a different perspective, right? He's trying to show us there is another pitfall that we often fall into outside of hopelessness and despair. And that pitfall that we can fall into when we go through trials and struggles and we see no way out is sin. Sometimes when we are going through things, we feel that the easiest thing to do is to just sin and get it over with. <laughs> We're looking for something. <laughs> y'all know I'm telling y'all the truth. Okay. Right. How many times have you heard the phrase, the best way to get over a man is to get under a new one? <laughs> Sorry, children. Sorry, children. Am I right? Am I right? 
If you can't say amen, say ouch. Sometimes life hits us so hard and we see no way out of it and God is not coming to the rescue fast enough and we need something to take our minds off of it and the easiest thing to do is give in to the flesh. Give in to sin. We're looking for things that will distract us things that will take away the pain, things that will numb the pain or help us cope with the pain. And the, and the devil always has something waiting for you. Jesus was in the wilderness. He had fasted 40 days. And Matthew says, and after that, he was hungry. And what did Satan do? He's like, you see those rocks over there? You're the son of God. Turn those rocks into bread and just eat. I, I often think those, those rocks to Jesus was probably smelling like them Golden Corral biscuits with the honey butter. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. With the, with the honey butter, you know. Satan has a tailor-made temptation ready and waiting for every single one of us. And the easiest thing to do is to just give in. What Peter is trying to teach us here is that struggling well, right, the purpose of our series, struggling well comes from fixing our eyes on Jesus and consistently telling ourselves the whole story. Remember how we ended this last week? Your whole story is not the pain and suffering you're going through. You have to put in what God has done for you and what he is going to do for you and put that your suffering in the proper context in order to make sure you do not fall into sin. Peter points out the tendency that we have to give up and to fall into sin whenever we feel wronged. And so what I want us to do is notice three things in this passage, right? Three things in this passage that Peter uh, pulls up. I'm going to skip verse 13 and come back to that at the end. But three things that Peter says in this passage to help us to deal with this tendency to fall into sin whenever we are struggling to cope. Number one, he tells us in verses 14 and 15 that we are not to conform ourselves to our former lust, but we are to be holy. Number two, Verse 17, he tells us, because God does not show favoritism, we ought to respond in fear. Okay, remember, fear is not being afraid. It means loving respect. Number one, we are not to conform ourselves to the former lust, but we are to be holy. Number two, because God does not show favoritism, we ought to respond in fear. And number three, we have been redeemed from our aimless conduct by a lamb without spot or blemish. We have been redeemed from our aimless conduct by a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, what I want us to see in this, throughout all of these things is that Peter is 
uh, putting an emphasis on our conduct. He's trying to show us um, our way of relating to God, to ourselves, to other people, to the world, right, all of these things. He's trying to show us how we respond when we are hurting so that we can learn to do better. I'm going to briefly touch on these three things in this passage. Now, (laughs) it's funny how as I was working my way through this, I took a stroll down memory lane. And um, in the 80s and in the 90s, um, cursing people out was like an Olympic sport. (laughs) Right? Um, (laughs) you, you, You had to... Sometimes you had to go home and practice, like how you go, how would you would say something, you know, and um, because you had to say it with with like just the right tone of voice, and you had to say it with with the right amount of tempo, right? It, it had to f- it had to flow at a certain tempo, at the right tone, so you people could feel it. You know, you, you know, you know what I mean. You had to make sure that they felt it when you said it. Okay. Because you knew, you knew that after you said it, you were either going to be joked for sounding corny by saying it, or the other person was going to be joked because they just got based on. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, y'all that grew up in like the 2000s, y'all don't, like y'all don't know what I mean, but, but you know, <laughs> right? Like, oh, yo, he got based on. <laughs> right. It was like an Olympic sport. You, 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 it, was a, it was a way of relating. Growing up in Baltimore City, cursing people out got you out of a lot of fights. Right? Because I- if you said it just the right way, you would make the other person think, like, I don't know, I might not want to mess with them. <laughs> you know, they sound crazy. Okay. I remember days walking across North and Broadway, you know, having having to say some things to some people. <laughs> so they had no. I'm like, and I'm just like, I just want to get to Lafayette Avenue. <laughs> if I could just get to 1717. <laughs> right? But it's like, you can't show that. It's like, whoop, 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 whoop. you know, you got to say it. You just got to say it. You just got to say it. You got to say it how you mean it. You know, I remember one time we was, I was working with Keisha at the movie theater. And somebody said something, and I, I accidentally, I was like, I was like, we can't be doing around the church, people. <laughs> I was like, don't be telling people I said that. <laughs> but it's like, you, you got to say it just the right way. Okay. Now, if you are like me, you are remembering some conversations that you had in the 80s and the 90s. I know it's like the 80s and the 90s is good, you know, because back, you know, in the 2000s, we got saved and sanctified and, you know, we don't use that kind of language anymore. But you remember some conversations that you used to have, right? That you used to have. And although we may laugh at some of those times, notice that Peter says that we can't act how we used to act because now we are holy. We, we can't act how we used to act because now we are holy. I want us to keep this in mind that holiness for some of us uh, is like an unattainable standard. We're like, well, that's something that we just can't do. Because we think that holiness means sinlessness, 
by means that don't sin at all. What I will what I will challenge you to do is go to Leviticus chapter 19 and read that several times in different translations. OK, um, uh, I tell you how many times to read it. You already know five times. There you go. You already know if I'm going to tell you to read something, read it five times. Leviticus 19. And you will see here because in Leviticus chapter 11, God tells the nation of Israel, you are to be holy because I am holy. He picks that back up in the beginning of Leviticus chapter 19 and the entire chapter. He is telling them how they are supposed to live because they are a holy people. And what we see in Leviticus chapter 11 is that God, by saying be holy, is telling them that they are supposed to copy his ethical standard. The chapter is talking about very mundane things, how you're supposed to treat your parents how you're supposed to treat the poor, how you're supposed to uh, handle your business practices. It says don't cheat your neighbor by having unjust weights. So you're like, oh, yeah, 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 we charge by the pound, okay? Oh, how many pounds is it? Knowing that y your, your pound is like 17 ounces when everybody else is a 16 ounces, right, so that you can charge them more money without them knowing it, right? It talks about very mundane things. That's what holiness looks like how we treat people. Okay. Clearly, what God is saying to us here, in the middle of Leviticus 19, we find what we call the second great commandment. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. So in the middle of a passage that teaches you that you are supposed to be holy, we find that you are supposed to love people the same way you love yourself. This is what we need to keep in mind in the midst of our trials. Struggling well comes from learning to respond in love and holiness instead of what will make our flesh feel good in the moment. In the moment, cussing people out feels really good. It does. It just, you know, it just makes you feel better. <laughs> but what we have to learn how to do is not give in to what makes us feel good in the moment. We have to learn to do what is right. And the loving thing to do is not curse the person out. Because you would not want someone to do that to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is that because God does not show favoritism, we ought to respond in fear or love and respect. Okay. Now, I want to return to my previous example uh, about this Christian person who felt justified in cursing out other people. Okay. She felt she had nothing to repent for because... Someone hurt her. I'm just responding to what they did to me. And if I'm responding to what someone did, has done to me, well, I'm automatically justified. I'm right in how I respond. Right? 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 Okay. That was just a, a trick question. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just because someone hurts you does not make your response 
right. You both can be wrong. And I think that this is what uh, Peter is trying to get us to see. That oftentimes when we go about telling our friends how we feel about something, right? Girl, so-and-so cussed me out. What you think? I cussed her back out. Of yeah, girl, I would cuss her out too. Peter's trying to tell us God is not like that. God doesn't show favoritism. God is never going to sit back and, 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 and listen to you say, but God, they person did this to me. They hurt me. They wronged me. So I feel justified. God will say, you know what? They are so wrong. He, he put his arm around you. I understand exactly how you feel. They were so wrong. He's like, yeah, they were wrong, God. And he's going to look at you and say, but guess what? You were wrong, too. God's job is to call balls and strikes. His job is not to to say you were justified in doing something wrong because someone hurt you. God says, be holy because I'm holy. And guess what God does every single day? God has a whole lot of people cussing him out, calling him names, questioning his judgment, telling him he's he's done something wrong in their life. And guess what he does? He keeps sending them blessings. Says, be like me. God does not show favoritism. Sin is sin to God regardless of the circumstance that brings it about. You know, to us, we have what we call situational ethics, <laughs> right? The right thing to do just depends on the situation. <laughs> right. God doesn't believe in situational ethics. Sin is always sin to God, and he does not show favoritism. So here's the takeaway on the second point takeaway is this struggling well comes from learning to respond to God with loving respect you see the problem is that we keep looking at the other person you hurt me so I respond to you in a certain way but notice what Peter is saying here notice what he says in the verse right He tells us to respond in loving fear. Are we responding to the person that hurt us in loving, loving fear or loving respect? No, we are to respond to God. And that's the problem. We too often have our eyes on the wrong person. We think that because that person hurt me, then I need to respond to them. And what you need to recognize is that you first need to respond to God. Respond to God in loving respect, and you will properly respond to the person that has hurt you. (coughs) We are focused on the words and actions of the other person. We are focused on what the other person has done to us instead of focusing on what God has done for us. Or we respond because of our pride. You know how you're like, yo, I ain't no punk. (laughs) 
you, you ain't going to be talking to me like, who do you think you talking to? Right? We respond the wrong way because we're worried about the wrong things. You must stop focusing on responding to the other person or even responding to your circumstance and start responding to God. Because we know God does not show favoritism and because we fear God, meaning that we put him first in everything, we have to respond in ways that demonstrate love, honor, and respect for him even when we are hurting. You know one of the things I think that we, <laughs> we as Christians wrestle with? I know I wrestle with this. I wrestle with uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Then you will be sons of the living God. Now, I remember one time I, we, I, we were going over this verse, and um, just out of the blue, I just came out. I said, people were like, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. I was like, oh, okay. So are you able, if your enemy is struggling for food, are you able to go and buy their groceries for them and put it on the step? Somebody flat out was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. This way, this way I got to dig in right here. Okay. We struggle with that because we just want to see God get our enemies back. And oftentimes, we want to be the instrument that God uses, <laughs> right? God, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. <laughs> Those are times that we want to be used by the Lord, right? <laughs> but listen, we are supposed to love our enemies and even speak to our enemies with grace-filled words not because we're soft, okay? Because I'm like, I ain't, I ain't soft. I ain't, ain't nothing soft about me, you know? But it, it, we, we respond to them in a loving way, not because we're soft, but because we want to honor and please God. Third point, we have been redeemed from our aimless conduct by a lamb without spot or blemish. blemish. Now, I think that, in this third point that Peter is showing us, he highlights the fact that we have been been uh, redeemed from by a lamb without spot or blemish. And I, I was wondering, why do I think that, that Peter uh, focuses on this aspect of Jesus, right? And I think that what, what I'm thinking here is that for most of us as Christians, we really need to upgrade our understanding of salvation. Right? We think of salvation in, in terms of the future, right? I put my trust in Jesus, so when I die, I get to go to heaven, okay? And so we, 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 we have our fire insurance. I'm not going to ever go to hell, all right? So that being taken care of, I can just go and live as I want for the rest of the life because I'm not going to hell. But we need to really change our understanding of salvation. And we need to stop treating salvation as if it is only a future reality. We need to understand that it is supposed to radically change every single aspect of our lives today. So here Peter does not connect our redemption to our future 
He connects our redemption to our past. He says, you have been redeemed from your aimless conduct. He doesn't say you have been redeemed, meaning set the word redeemed means to be set free or liberated. He's not saying that you have been liberated so you're going to heaven. He says you're being redeemed from something, and that something is how you used to respond, how you used to act, your aimless conduct. Now, whether that um, conduct is keeping the Old Testament law, whether it is you came from a, like a pagan background, like worshiping idols, or if it is simply your poor coping mechanisms, Jesus paid for all of that. His blood set you free from how you used to talk to people in the 80s and the 90s. And the truth be told, some of the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> I hear some whispering over there. Okay. Not the 2021s. Okay. (laughs) Now, but he says you have been redeemed. You have been liberated from your from your uh, aimless conduct by a lamb without spot um, spot or blemish. And I think that the emphasis that uh, Peter is placing here is on how Jesus responds in trials. Now, all of us have been through something. If you ha- are not have not been through something or you're not going through something, just hold on. Something is on the way. Okay. Now, what you have to think about, though, is 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 what you are going through anything like what Jesus faced. They spat in his face, not one person, groups of people spat on him. They beat him. They plucked out his beard with their hands. They took one inch thorns and jammed them into his skull. And then they nailed him naked in front of his mother, all of his friends and strangers. Now, I don't know about you. I've never been through anything like that. Don't want to go through anything like that. So how did Jesus respond? His first words were, Father, forgive them. Now, if there was ever a time (laughs) to use a different F word, (laughs) that would be the moment for me. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but not Jesus. <laughs> but 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 not Jesus. <laughs> right? Fa- fa- his mom was his mom was on forgiveness. He was able to go through trials, through suffering, through pain. We know from Hebrews, he said, for the joy that was set before him, because he knew he would be able to save all of us. He went through that joyfully. He joyfully went through it. It was hurting. He was in pain. He cried out to his father, but he endured it because of us. And so he asked for forgiveness rather than cursing everyone and calling. He said, we can save you from it. Jesus said, listen, hold on. I could ask my father and a whole legion of angels could stop this. A legion is 5,000 soldiers. Jesus could just look up. 
And 5,000 5, angels, boom, 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 could have wiped everybody out. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. Struggling well is about learning how to follow Jesus' example. We have to learn to recognize that the gospel sets us free from our poor way of responding to pain, and it empowers us to emulate Jesus. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I ain't got there yet. I'm just not there. I'm like, I'm like, I, I stepped, I'm walking in that direction, <laughs> but I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Right. I've, I've, I've learned, you know, not to cuss people out, but sometimes I'll be in my head, I'll be like, I'll punch him. I'm like, I'll be like, I'm like, forgive me, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Lord. I'd be like, I'm going to pray for you. In my mind, I'd be like, I'd be thinking like, now which jujitsu move am I going to? <laughs> I'd be like, should I should be a Soto Gare? <laughs> right. Now I got to go home and ask the Lord to forgive me. <laughs> but he set us free to not have to struggle with old ways of relating. He has taught us a new way to relate to our enemies, and he has empowered us through the gospel to be able to respond properly to our pain. Now, as I said before, I skipped verse 13. I want to come back to verse 13. Okay, I gave you those three things, but I skipped verse 13 because I think that verse 13 kind of grounds everything else. Right, it's the foundation of everything else that Peter says in this passage. Okay. So, verse 13 says this. H- how are we supposed to do this? Okay. You all are surprised thinking like, well, I mean, that's I mean, that's common sense. I've been a Christian all of these years. I know I'm not supposed to cuss people out. But you're not telling me how to stop. <laughs> okay? Okay. Now listen to this. Listen to what he says here. Verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that this whole issue of how we respond when we're going through trials or struggles or suffering or pain or when someone hurts us, it all sits on this question, where does my hope lie? Where does my hope lie? And this is not a question that we can answer once and be done with it. It is a question we have to answer every single day because it is the reason why we struggle when we go through things where does my hope lie now i would argue that the reason that we often fall into hopelessness despair and even sin is because we have misplaced our true hope our hope is not often rooted in jesus and his kingdom in his future kingdom it is rooted in this world two examples number one I remember talking to uh, my uh, grandmother and my grandfather, right? Because I wanted to know, what was it like to live through the Great Depression? And so 
Um, I was talking to uh, my, 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 uh, both of them because my grandma was born in 1923. My grandfather was born in 1916. And um, so, th- so they would have been old enough to remember the Great Depression. I remember asking my grandfather one day, what was it like to live through the Great Depression? He's like, boy, we didn't know it was the Great Depression. That's how we always lived. <laughs> right? Yeah, hey, the truth is the truth, right? In South Carolina, that's, they wasn't living on, on a farm. They did all of their work. They, they didn't know it was a Great Depression. They just got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, milked the cow, got some eggs, and ate. Okay. But when the stock market crashed, how many millionaires, have, if you remember the story, threw themselves out of windows to their death because they had nothing else to live for. Some people went through the Great Depression, they were like, mm. And some people had, had nothing else to live for. They threw themselves out of the windows. You know why? Because they had fully rested their hope in their money. And because that that prop was kicked out from under them, they had nothing else to live for. They had fully rested their hope in the wrong thing. There's an image from January the 20th, 2017. I will never forget this image. And every time I think about this image, I am going to crack up laughing. You all know January the 20th, 2017 was the day that Donald Trump was inaugurated. I remember watching TV and there was this young woman on her knees holding on to the barricades outside the inauguration. And as soon as noon hit and Trump took his uh, oath of office, she was like, no! I said, I... I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. I'll I'll never forget that. And I'm going to crack up every single time I think about that. I was just recently listening to some people talk, and and, and they they were saying that for four whole years of Trump being president, they were struggling with anger and depression. I'm like, is it that serious? But guess what? <laughs> but guess what? During the eight years of Obama, you had people on the other side struggling with anger and depression. You know why? Because too many of us fully rest our hope in politics and politicians. And when that prop is kicked from under us, We have nothing else to live for. The question that each one of us face, I mean, we could laugh at that young lady. You know, we could talk about the people in the Great Depression. But the the question for us that we answer every single day is, what have we fully rested our hope in? Is it in relationships? Is it in job status? Is it in your 401k? You know how you find out what you fully rested your hope in? Let someone tell you no. 
pray to God and ask for something and he says no, or he takes too long giving it to you, see how you act. That lets you know how, what you put your hope in. You all know, I, I laugh at this. I oftentimes go to the supermarket and, and you know, I, it's like, it's a psychology behind this. I'm like, why do y'all put candy at the register? You know how these kids going to act. The big kids too. We walk by. I was in Walmart the other day, and they're like, "I'm like, Daddy, can no." Every hour we walk, Daddy, can no, 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 no. And now at the back, I'm like, "Look, you better hurry up. <laughs> Just hurry up, <laughs> right?" So I'm like, "I don't even feel like it." But sometimes these you have kids, they in the line, and you tell them no, they ah, 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 ah. they be falling out, and I'd be like, "Boy, if this was the '80s." And I ain't talking about praise and worship, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, it's a land, land hand thing. But you know what? It's so hilarious to see people that are 40, 50, 60 years old, spiritually falling. Ah! God didn't answer my prayer. Oh, I didn't get that raise. Oh, I didn't get it. I'm like, what, what are you resting your hope in? Because we respond like that when we go through struggles. Because really our hope was in what we wanted. And when we can't get what we want, we fall into hopelessness, despair, sin, or spiritual temper tantrums. It's a question that we have to answer every single day. Now, Peter tells us here two ways that we are supposed to put our hope fully in Christ. Number one, he tells us to gird up the loins of your mind. And number two, he tells us to be sober. Now, anybody in here know what, it, you know, ever had to gird up your loins? <laughs> 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 I doubt it. I, I seriously doubt it. So let me let give you where this example comes from. You know that back in the day, they, in, in, in ancient times, they used to wear long robes, right? But you know you can't fight people in long robes, okay? Ladies, you all know what you do when, when, when that girl about to fight. You be like, oh, hold up, hold up. <laughs> right? It's like you, you do what? You tie your hair up because you don't want anything in the way. So what they would do is that they would take their robe, they would tie their robes into their belts so that they would have freedom of movement. They were moving anything that could distract them or trip them up. That is what Peter is saying when he says, gird up the loins of your mind. The struggle is here. The struggle is not what, uh, what you're going through, the circumstance or the person that hurt you. The struggle is right here. We have mental things that are distracting us that we're struggling with. And so Peter is saying, tie up all of the loose ends. What are the things that, that are distracting you, the things that, are, that you're struggling with, the things that is taking your mind away so that you put your hope in those other things and not in Christ? Tie those things up. It's different for each one of us, right? For some of us, it's I don't want nobody to call me a punk, so I'm just going to, we're going to fight every time you say something to me. 
<laughs> okay, right? That, 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 that's a mental thing that needs to be put to the side. Right. Every single one of us has something that we hold on to, right? We got to tie those things up so that they don't distract us from our real hope, which is Christ. Number two, he tells us to be sober. And, and we may often think that this word sober uh, is talking about alcohol, but that is not what is being said here, right? He's talking about sobriety of thinking. Okay. In this, this commentary, this is how they de- uh, it, um, it is described as what is being said. He says, but how does one bind up the loins of his mind? This participle, this word here, uh, bind up, gives the mode by which the idiom is realized by being self-controlled. Although the verb can refer to sobriety as the opposite of alcoholic uh, drunkenness, when used in the context of thinking, it refers to a broader range of soberness or sobriety, namely restraint and moderation, which avoids excess in passion, rashness, or confusion. Don't be acting erratic. That's his point. Don't be erratic. Okay. Be, be, be sober in the way you think. And hence, it is talking about self-control. The mind is not to be understood narrowly as denoting only the intellectual life, but as that which determines conduct. The avoidance of intoxication is certainly included, especially in any society where those who have no hope often take refuge in drunkenness. Peter wishes his readers to avoid any form of mental or spiritual intoxication that will confuse the reality that Christ has revealed and deflect them from a life steadfastly fixed on the grace of Christ. Self-control of the mind facilitates prayer and an awareness of the devil's ways. Right. So what is he saying? He's saying that what we have to do is not only take anything that is distracting us and tie it up, so it's no longer a distraction. It doesn't get in the way. We have to learn to think in a way that is sober, that's not erratic. I'm, I'm, I'm all over here. Well, well, uh, uh, we, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on, right? You, you act like you're spiritually intoxicated, right? Some folks say, what you been drinking? You know, spiritually speaking. He, he said, don't act in erratic ways. Learn to exercise self control and if we do these things right you will be able to recognize the reality that in this life things are not always going to go your way but you can handle yourself appropriately even when you don't get what you want why because my hope is not in this world my hope is in the world to come I may not get everything that I want in this life. People are going to hurt me in this life. I'm going to have struggles in this life. And yet, my hope is not in lack of struggle, getting everything I want, living a life of luxury. My hope is in Christ and in the world to come. Because in that world, if I don't get a mansion in this world, Jesus says, John chapter 14, I got one waiting for you over there. If I don't get that I-8 BMW that I've been dreaming of, that I don't have $125,000 to pay for, <laughs> if I don't get it in this life, I guarantee you I'm going to get something better over there. Now, I don't know if they got, you know, BMWs in heaven, 
you know. But I'm sure whatever God can come up with is a lot better than a BMW. <laughs> and if people hurt me here in this life, God says, I'm taking you to a place where I will wipe away every tear from your eye. What are you fully resting your hope in? That is the question that needs to be answered when you are going through struggles. You have to you have to ask yourself, what, what am I hoping for? What am I desiring? What am I trying to get out of this? Right. And, and, and if it is not the glory of Christ, your hope is in the wrong thing. You will not be able to struggle well. Now, we're going to keep working our way uh, through this passage, um, through this chapter. Next week, we're going to look at verse uh, 23 down to chapter 2, verse 10. Okay. So we, the, the first thing he tells us in chapter, um, um, the beginning of, the, of chapter 1, he tells us that we have a living hope, right, that, that you may be suffering. Remember, he's talking to people who had lost everything. They had been kicked out of their homes. They had been relocated to, to different cities. They lost family, friends, everything they had worked for, right? But he says, listen, you still have hope. You have a living hope. That hope is Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and it will be applied to you. You will live also. Here, he is, is, is telling them what they should really put their hope in. And again, that is Christ and his future kingdom. Now, in the next section, uh, he tells us what we need to do, right? And what we need to nourish ourselves on, and that is the word of God. Okay. We'll pick that back up next week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you. We thank you for all of uh, the things that you have placed in your word. Your word touches on every single thing that we will ever go through. I ask, Lord, that you would help us in this series uh, because all of us are struggling with something. And oftentimes we are struggling and wrestling in silence. No one else knows what we're going through. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not suffer in silence, number one, and, and be able to openly share with one another. But I pray that you would help us to remind ourselves that we have hope. And this is not just a future hope, it's an eternal hope. It's a hope that started in the past and it continues on into the future. I pray that you will help us to see that you will not deliver us from every single struggle. Because oftentimes it's the struggles that make us stronger. I pray that you will help us to see that, that fighting against the struggle will oftentimes delay us getting out of it. And that is what pushes us into hopelessness and despair and sometimes into sin. I pray, Lord, as we are working our way through this, this passage, that you would, would show us by your spirit the areas that we're wrestling, the places where we are not resting our hope in you, the areas where we are allowing things in our minds to, to distract us and, and take us away and not exercise spiritual sobriety and self-control. Help us really to work our way through these several questions that, 
we've picked up in the text. Because truly, this is the place where we struggle and fail. But we want to struggle well. We want to be able to say that if you don't deliver us in these struggles that we have, we will go through them with you and glorify you. Regardless of what we may feel about ourselves or other people may say or think, we want to please you. Teach us how to struggle well. Because you set that example for us when you died for us. We thank you now for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.